I'm Daniel Wordsworth. I've led humanitarian relief efforts in just about every disaster, natural and man-made, for the last 30 years. Smuggled into North Afghanistan in a helicopter after 9-11, made the overland route to Kyiv in the early days of the Ukraine invasion, and I led an emergency team into Sri Lanka after the East Asia tsunami. Across all continents, I've seen the worst of humanity. Terrible tragedy in places like Darfur, Congo, and Somalia. Horrors even worse than you can imagine. I've been in wars, famines, and epidemics. But here's the thing. Having experienced and seen all of this, I believe the world is abundant. As humans, we can make a difference. And I know, not believe, I know that humans are good. The way you see the world is how the world will show up for you. And in this podcast, I'll explain why. We'll talk to leaders, people making a difference, and we'll discuss the issues that impact us as they happen. Well, that's Daniel. Uh, my name's Fitz, and this is Finding Good, the podcast where we hope to inspire optimism. You're a reluctant optimist, Daniel. Yeah. Self-described. Sounds worse than it is, but yeah. <laughs> you can follow along on the socials. Daniel's on all the socials. And you can also send him a question if you have one uh, via the website, danielwordsworth.com. And please, if you're listening on Spotify or Apple, it's really important that you go and hit the follow or subscribe button. That way you don't miss any of the episodes when they drop. All right. So today I want to talk about kind of two things. Okay. Yep. I want to talk about this thing called Maslow's Hierarchy of Needs, which has come to dominate the kind of work that I do. Mm -hmm. But also I want to answer a bigger question, I think, which is what does it mean to be poor? Okay. Uh, Well, let's start with uh, Maslow. Now, when you say Maslow's Hierarchy of Needs... I'm assuming you're talking about Abraham Maslow, the American psychologist who came up with the five-point hierarchy of needs. I know because I Googled you it Googled when you told it. me you wanted to talk about this. Yeah, yeah. So his, his five need states, will you explain so I'll, I'll explain it, right. You may not remember who coined this, but I think most of us understand this idea because it's really it's sort of deep in our culture now. And it's this idea that human beings have like a pyramid of needs, Now, he described five, but I think it's easier to think about them as basically three. So at the bottom is the idea that we have our basic physical, physiological needs that have to be met. Mm -hmm. That's the food, that's our clothing, that's shelter, that's um, all those sort of basic human things. You have to survive. Then the next level up in the pyramid is things like connection, Right, so that's connection to family, connection to your community, that's being safe and, um, but, you know, just being able to have relationships in your life, right? So that's meant to be it's called a, like a second order need. Okay. And then at the top is a thing that I, Heath, I think, talked about self-actualization. But I just think about it like meaning and purpose. That's like, what's, you know, the purpose of my life? What's my meaning? Who am I? You know, all those sort of bigger questions that we asked. And so the idea and the way that we understand Maslow's hierarchy is this sort of not up, but we understand it more like a sequence. And so what's happened in our space, in the space where you work with human beings, people have, have taught me for years that when a human being comes to you, they come. To, you have to respond to them in a sequential manner. So the first question you ask is, Physiologically, at the lowest level, lowest order need, are you meeting those needs? Food, shelter, clothing, um, those basics. Secondly, once you're doing that stuff, 
then you progress to the next one. What are the relationships like? Are you, uh, you know, bringing separated families together? Are people living together as family units? Are they able to be within their own community? Are they able to, you know, go back to church, go back to school, get into all of that sort of fabric of sort of connection and communion that you have in community? And then when you put that in place and when that stuff's all going, then people say it's only then that, you're, that that human being will show up in a way where they're talking about things like dignity and meaning and purpose. And, and, it can sometimes, and the assumption is that it can sometimes take years to progress through this. Now, this is very relevant in the kind of work that I do, meaning if you're working in a conflict zone, you're responding to an earthquake, you have a refugee camp, you have people that are, you know, they may have walked for two weeks and have nothing, not even, they have only the clothes they're wearing and the kids they're carrying. What I've been was taught for many years was the only thing they want at that point is this physiolog the lower order stuff, physiological stuff. That if you talk to them about relation, they don't care. Food, they don't care about meaning. Water. They just want food, water, shelter, shelter, safety. And it's okay if you spend two years doing that. So you build a refugee camp, it does those things, and they're like, that's fine. Mm. And after a few years of doing that, then you can look at, you know, bigger issues around community and connection and relationships. You can spend years on that. And then maybe at some point you could ask them what's the meaning of their life, right? But in truth, the assumption in my kind of work is that never happens. Right. Yeah, it never happens. So but you said assumption. So in your experience, is that accurate? Is that it, pyramid it, correct? So the way we understand Maslow's hierarchy of needs is wrong. Yep. Human beings do not progress through this uh, hierarchy at all. So yep. it's fundamentally Fundamentally inaccurate. Right. And incorrect. Now, am I saying that Maslow is incorrect? I don't know, right? I, I think what he was doing in my reading of Maslow is that he was trying to remind people that were very focused on these bottom level. He was actually trying to say, hey, humans also care about relationships. They also care about dignity and meaning and purpose, and we're just focused here. But we've come to flip it around. We're like, it's good enough to just meet basic needs. These other things are higher order things that mm -hmm. can come later. And the human beings don't even value those. And this, this is the key point. Human beings don't even value those things, relationships, meaning, purpose, dignity, until their physical needs have been met. Now, I have been in all of the most dire situations in the world, and that is absolutely untrue. But there is one exception. If your children are dying, then none, nothing else matters. That's like even a lower rung on that hierarchy of needs. If you're a parent, and your child is dying of starvation or is sick and, and is dying, yeah. then you don't care about meaning or purpose. You don't care about the, all the relationships in your life. You don't even care about your food, shelter, and clothing. You are absolutely focused on meeting the needs of those children. Outside of that, every time you meet a human being, even if they've walked for two weeks, they come to you as a person and they fundamentally and deeply wanted to be treated that way. What comes to mind as I say this is a young guy that I met maybe 20 years old a number of years back. So I was uh, living in a city, uh, Minneapolis, that has a large Somali community and we were trying to do a response inside Somalia and we wanted to mobilize the Somali community in Minneapolis to help us in our response inside Somalia. Yeah. has a large Somali population there. And so I was going out, you know, basically door to door talking to the Somali community about 
What should a response look like in Somalia? How can they help? How would they like to lead that response? And trying to, you know, sort of invite them in. And one group of people I met was a group of young students. It was like, you know, it was 10 at a local university, 10 Somali students. And we were doing our, like, focus group conversation and we were talking, talking, talking. And there was one guy at the sort of back of the table. He, very quiet, never had anything to say. And the meeting finished and everybody was filing out and he was sort of hanging around at the end. And I was at the door, like the vicar, and he, they were, he walks past, and I'm shaking hands, and then he walks up to me, and he says, I have some things I want to, I have two things I want to say to you. And I said, okay, great, because he'd been really quiet, and so this was a chance to actually hear from him, and he said, I get it, first thing, but I, and I get it, your organization was not, he was not working in the camp that he'd grown up in, but he said, you're the only humanitarian leader I've ever had a chance to actually meet face-to-face so I'm going to take my shot and take my moment while I got you. Correct. Yeah? So I got two things I want to say. So I'm like, okay, great. You, what are your two things? And he said, the first thing, I want to say thank you. He said, when I was six, my family fled the war in Somalia and we moved into the Dadaab refugee camp, which is a camp inside Kenya, population of 400, 450,000 people. It's fast uh, refugee settlement. And he said, I lived in that camp from when I was six to when I was 16 for 10 years. And he said, if it wasn't for organizations like yours, I never would have gone to school. I never would have had a clinic. I wouldn't have had water. And we wouldn't have even eaten as a family. So he said, I want to take this chance while I've got you here to say thank you. And he said, I know you you guys weren't there in Dadaab, but, you know, I want to say people like you were there. And so I want to say thank you to people like you. And then I said, okay, well, then... It was our pleasure. We, I'm telling you, the people that were doing that with you well, they would have loved it. And then he said, oh, but I've got a second thing. I said, what's, what's your second thing? And he said, my name is Mohammed. And I said, um, that's great. You know, hi, Mohammed. And he put his hand out to shake it. And so I put my hand out and we shook. And he, he sort of held onto it just firmly, and wouldn't let me go. And he said, my name's Muhammad. And I said, no, yeah, yeah, no, I I got it. And he said, no, you're not getting it. I said, well, tell me. And he said, for those 10 years, healthcare, education, food, water, it felt like you were doing these things to me. And he said, at no point did I feel like any of you actually saw me. And so now that I've got the chance, I want to introduce myself. My name's Muhammad. And it was a really telling moment for me because I thought, dang, he's fully aware of everything and yet he just wanted to be seen. Now on the Maslow thing, we think that's a high order. You think he won't care. He was seven or eight years old. He's getting his food. He's getting getting his his food. He's He's like, but he cared. He cared. He cared now. He was like, this was four years after he left. He cared enough. Why do you think that was important to him? Yeah. It's this beautiful thing about human beings. It's, um, and it brings me to this idea of what poverty is. Because I've been working on what people would call poverty for my entire adult life. And, you know, I, I get told all the time what poverty means by people. And typically what it tells me, the way a person tells you what poverty is typically tells me more about who they are than what poverty actually is. Mm -hmm. You know, um, 
people on the right will say poverty is like not having a job or, you know, you, got to, um, not, you need an income, you need livelihood, very economically oriented. Yep. And so we have measures for that, like poverty is a dollar a day or two dollars a day, and mm-hmm. if you're below that, you're in poverty. Then you have more people like more than the progressive side that will say, no, it's about systems and exclusion, and it's about sort of big, large-scale things like rights, and it's the absence of these things. And, uh, and often what you find is people are very much like, no, it's this thing or it's this thing. I think it ties back to this Maslow. The experience of poverty is a much more intimate experience and it's understood in a deeply human way. So I, I've tried to grapple with this and to ask the question, what is it like to be poor as a human being? And at one stage I was working um, like I am now with kids and we wanted to address poverty for kids around the world and we thought, well, I wonder what poverty is like if you're 10. Like what is poverty, what, how, do you, how does a 10-year-old experience poverty? What do they think about it? What does a 16-year-old think about it? Does a 7-year-old actually even know what poverty is? Like we thought, well, let's go and ask them. Actually. Well, if it's all you've ever known, surely it's just Yeah, you would think life. it's just like the two goldfish, right? Yeah. Um, the water's cold today. What's water? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right? It's just like they've been in it all their time. They would not have a reading of this. That's, I think we would think that. And you would say in these places they would go, that's normal life. So what we did is we did the first ever global study to actually ask children, what is it like to be poor? And the fight, we worked with Oxford University to do this mm-hmm. and a group of anthropologists at Oxford University. And uh, what we did first is we did a, in like three sections. Section number one was go out to all the experts around the world and ask them, what's poverty like for a child? Read everything you can possibly read. Do this. It's called a lit review, right? right. So do this giant lit review. Find out what all the brainiacs Written are by saying. academics. Yeah, all, they, what the, all the big brains are yeah. saying. Step two, send teams out to live in villages, communities and towns around the world in five countries. So we picked uh, Sierra Leone, Belarus, uh, Kenya, India and Bolivia. Oh, you're talking about third world poor here. Yeah, talk, well, uh, we, we included Belarus, right. which would be considered like second world at that time. Okay. It was in a former Soviet uh, country. But, but really we're talking about, yeah, places that we were working in. Mm-hmm. Yep. Although it ends up having a, a real connection to even to a place like Australia. So we, we went out to these five countries and we sent researchers out. And the idea was that we're going to live in the village, hang out with kids and their parents, of course, and find out what's it like to be poor in Sierra Leone? What's it like to be poor in India? What's it like to be poor in Belarus, Bolivia, wherever, Kenya? One of those countries, Sierra Leone, was in the middle of a war. Belarus, this was post uh, the collapse of the wall. This was a place like Bolivia is in Latin America. So you, you've got a pretty broad spectrum of countries here. Yep. And uh, the, the researchers went out. And about a week or so into the research, the head researcher, person by the name of Dr. Joe Boyden, rang me up. I was still sitting in the US. She rang up and said, I think we need to, like, call this off. And I said, why would we call this off? And she said, well, I don't think people are going to like what we're finding. I said, what are you talking about? She goes, well, you know how we did the whole thing beginning? Mm -hmm. We found out what all the experts in the brainiacs say the poverty is, yes, and how children experience, yes. Mm -hmm. She said, now we're all here. It's not the same thing. (laughs) In fact, it is nothing alike. 
That what children, how children are describing their experience is absolutely contrary to how the experts say they'll describe their experience. And I said, well, that's awesome. She said, that is absolutely not awesome, right? Because people are going to be upset. And no one's going to want to publish this. And I don't know that you really want to do this. Now, at the time, I was 32 years old. And so I just said, you know, into the breach, like some equivalent of, you know, (laughs) into the breach, like we should do this. Turns out she was completely correct (laughs) on this. But, But she was completely right. So I said, but what, what are the kids saying? So anyway, they did all this research. Keep going, keep yeah. going. So they did all this research and they came back. Now, I'm going to paraphrase it down. You, you can actually Google this. You know, it, it's called Children in Poverty Series and it's the Voices of Children and all this stuff. You can still find that on the web. But, and it's, you know, thick documents. But I, I'm going to summarize it right down. Okay. So what is it like to be a child and be poor? And it was remarkably similar in all these countries. And it was like this. They said, it's like this. When I'm in a classroom... And the teacher is asking a question and she wants somebody in the classroom to answer it. I put my hand up and the teacher looks at me and says, you are one of the poor ones. You're lucky to be in the room. Sit down and let one of the smart children answer the question. And then they say, and then I hop up and then I go into the playground and I notice that some of the kids have actually got a real soccer ball. And I run over because I want to play the real soccer ball. And as I join them, they say, you are one of the poor ones go and play with the other poor ones. And I go over to with the other poor ones and they, we are playing with a soccer ball that is made out of plastic bags that are all tied together. He said, I'm not, I, I don't get to use the real soccer ball. And then I walk home and as I'm walking through the marketplace, I notice that as I walk past the stall, the lady that's running the stall is watching me because she thinks I'm poor and I'm a thief and that if she doesn't keep her eye on me, I'll steal an apple or something as I go past. And then when I go home, I do my chores and I work hard and do my homework and I want to go out and play, but I know that the neighbours don't want to play with me because their mothers and fathers have warned them not to play with me as though poverty is some kind of disease that you can catch. And what was amazing is that in all five countries, no children brought up in an unsolicited or unassisted way. Hunger, sickness, bad schooling, all the things, what's it like to be a, a to be a child well it's, you know you've got malnutrition you've got a, your school is in, inadequate and poor quality you're right you go you can't get the drugs you need which are all true but, but it's not but front of mind if for the not kids. it's not front of mind for the kids it's inclusion or exclusion that's yeah and it's a breakdown of relationships it's all of these kinds of things but it, it's all high order if you go back to maslow it was connections and meaning and purpose and dignity is how that... That's how a nine-year-old described the feeling of poverty. Now, then we asked this other question. We said, is it possible... We asked all these kids in all these five countries, is it possible to tell if a child is poor? Yes, they answered. Even seven- and eight-year-olds? Yes. You can tell easy. How easy is it? It's so easy. How, what is so easy? I can tell at a glance if a child is poor. This, this answer, because we asked the same set of questions and things... All five, easy, at a glance, immediately. And then we asked in all those countries, what is it? All five countries answered exact same way. And then I, coincidentally at the time, I read a magazine, Time magazine did an article with the bouncers from Studio 54. You remember that famous nightclub? And in the interview, the Time magazine people said, you used to keep one group of people waiting outside behind the red line and then you would let other people in. Yeah. 
how did you know who to keep in the line and who to let in? And they said, is it, is it easy? It's very easy. How can you tell who to let in? We can tell immediately. How do you, what, what do you do? They answered the same way as the kids around the world. It's the shoes, shoes. they're wearing. It's the shoes. <laughs> it's the shoes. It's so, it's so strange, isn't it's it? It's the shoes. They would say in Belarus they're wearing Nikes or not wearing Nikes. In India they're wearing hand-me-down shoes or not hand-me-down shoes. In Sierra Leone, barefoot, no shoes. So different types of shoes in every mm. different country. But you could tell immediately that way. Isn't that funny? So I grew up in, in a regional town in New South Wales mm. and uh, in Housing Commission and we weren't well off by any means, you know, people would make casseroles for us and drop them into the oven. And, yeah. and my grandfather would make me shine my shoes, my school shoes, every afternoon. <laughs> and the reason he gave me was that he said, if you don't, people will think you're poor. Right. <laughs> it is so true. It's so remarkable. Isn't that bizarre? Yeah. It's the shoes. Yeah. We look for markers. You know what was amazing for us? You know one of the services that we used to provide? We used to give... We, for the poorest kids in communities, one of the things we did was we gave them shoes. Mm. And then now we're reading this research and we realised for 40 years we have been branding kids the poor kids. Because if you got shoes from us, it meant you were one of the poor kids. Yeah. We used to give them all the same shoes and we had been branding these poor kids for 40 years. They were wearing the, our shoes. So all we had to do after that moment is we just gave the families cash voucher to go and buy any shoes they want. So you can just take a little piece of research like that, make one little response, change fundamentally uh, something that's as important as that. Would we have ever thought of that ourselves? Absolutely not. And no one had talked about that before this research. Yeah. And, and by the way, the, the funny thing is the organizer, when we finished this, because the third one was, what do you do? The, you know, first one, lit, lit review, or what do the, all the brainiacs say? What do the kids say? And then the third one was, so therefore, hmm. as an organization, what must you do in response? And that, you know, one of them is stop. We look at one another, we judge by appearance and then how we judge a person then puts them into some sort of structure and then we treat them a certain way and it has a deep, deeply human impact on them. So they challenged us. And then the organisation um, wouldn't publish it, took two years to publish it. In the end, when they published it on the opening page, it says the views expressed in here, ironically, children's views. The views expressed in here do not represent the views of the organisation. And our point was, no, no, it's the... That's the problem. That's the problem. Got it while we did yeah. it. So I will say now, you go, well, so it got buried. But at least for me, I found it immensely useful and it still guides everything that I do to this day. So there's got to be something that in these socialist states where everyone wears the same shoes and everyone dresses the same and from each according to his means to each according to their needs, everyone looks the same. There's, there's no class system. Uh, I, well, I can promise you that within that system, people found markers to put out signals. Right. Yeah. It's it's a newer green jacket. Right. It's a it's a green pair of pants that fit you. Yeah. Right. Right. You 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 know these are the highest communist officials are all wearing tailored green outfits. Of course. Yeah. Everybody finds ways to do this. But what about the adults in that situation? So so the academics answer one way, the children answer one way. Did anybody ask the parents of the children? Yeah. Yeah, we did. But and I and I want to focus on another piece of research we did that was analogous to this one. But I would say even in that research we also said <laughs> to the parents what's it like to be poor. And they actually had a remarkably similar thing. I will say they, they focused on something a little bit different, but they would describe, I think you, I may have already shared the story of the two Bolivian women that, that we talked to. Uh, we said, what's it like to be poor for you? And they said, it's to be like ghosts. 
He said, what do you mean ghosts? These are two Bolivian women living in La Paz mm. in um, – well, actually they were in a rural village in Bolivia. What's it like to be poor? They said it's to be like a ghost. So we said, what do you mean by ghost? And they said, well, we are here. We walk these streets. We live in this village our whole life. But no one sees us. No one listens to us. Our opinions mean nothing. We are invisible in this place. We are like ghosts in this village. It's heartbreaking. And then one older man in Kenya, we asked him, what's it like to be poor? He said, it's like this. He said, in our community, whenever we have big problems, we all come together to problem solve. And he says, I really feel like I have something I could say because I'm old and I've done many and seen many things. He said, but when I stand in these meetings and I stand up to say my thing, everybody looks and laughs and they say, old man, you are one of the poor ones. Sit down. You're lucky to even be in the room with us. He said, that's what it feels like to be poor. We took this further to refugees, yeah, because you – often when we think of refugees, we understand them also in the, according to that Maslow hierarchy. Yeah. So what we think is that, you know, somebody starts bombing you or they um, attack your country or they attack your village, that you flee because you no longer have shelter, food, water or you feel insecure. You, we think – that the reason why refugees leave is because the low-order things are not being met. And so the system, the refugee system, is designed to respond to that. It's built on that assumption. The person left their home because they had no food, shelter or clothing, clean water, and, they, and no security. Mm-hmm. And so we need to build them a refugee camp that answers that, food, shelter, clothing and security. That matches but at the time we did this research, we did it because the refugees were rejecting the entire system. Do you remember when a million refugees entered into Germany yeah. in the mid-2015, I think it's 14 or 15? Yeah. A million refugees went into Germany from Syria, Afghanistan, um, Iraq, from North Africa. A million went in. And we were sitting there as an organization that built refugee camps, looks after people in refugee camps. We've talked about this issue. The customer was rejecting the system. The customer was saying, I don't want to go to your refugee camps. Where do you want to go? Germany. <laughs> yep. Now, you, this was a wholesale rejection and it had never happened on this scale before. It was an ocean. It was like an avalanche of people moving. It was called the global refugee crisis. And then we thought we have to respond to this. We have to find out why the customer's leaving. We thought let's, let's go and ask them. Yeah. Why are you leaving? We're giving you all these bottom-level Maslow things. Mm-hmm. And so we went and we did research. We went to um, Germany. I participated in talking to refugees in Germany. We went to Turkey. We went to Kenya. We went to Somalia. We went to Lebanon. We talked to a whole bunch of countries that have refugees, all the types that are moving into um, Europe, and we asked them the same question. Why are you moving? Mm-hmm. I talked to one refugee in, from the city of Aleppo, and it, it's emblematic of what came from this. He said, um, it's because I'm from the city of Aleppo and the school that my child went to was bombed. But this is 2015. The war in Aleppo started around 2011, 2012. So he'd been in Aleppo three years. Yeah. Already food gone, shelter gone, water gone, all those basic needs gone. And he said, and then the university got rocketed. And he said, I realized on one day that my child's future was just bombed and destroyed that if I stayed here, my child couldn't finish secondary school and couldn't go to university. And he said, like, that I could not accept. And so we took our children, we crossed the Mediterranean, risked our lives, 
not because of the event that was occurring, but because of the end of what we saw as hope for a future for our children, high order needs. The refugees were fleeing absolutely not because of low order needs. They were leaving because of high order needs. And what is the one thing that a refugee camp doesn't give you? There's no universities in a refugee camp anywhere in the world. So is that something you you can change? Well, it, that's a much it's a much harder one to change. But what we did begin looking at was um, outside of um, universities, what in, can you do to make a young person see a future in the environment that they're in, and a, and a parent to see a future for their children? But just to say, it doesn't matter whether you are a child, whether you're an adult, or a refugee. You are experiencing everything as a full human being. You're weighing up every moment of the day. Have I got the basics that I need? Am I in the relationships that I that I um, need? And I, am I experiencing life with some level of dignity and meaning and purpose? And we all grapple with it that way. We are out of time for today, Daniel. Thank you. This is the Finding Good podcast. Don't forget you can follow Daniel's socials. You can ask him a question, anything you want to know. He's had an amazing life and he's uh, he's still working, obviously, as the CEO of World Vision Australia. Uh, if you have a question for Daniel, uh, you can always email us through the website, danielwordsworth.com. And if you're listening on Spotify or Apple or wherever you get your good podcasts, make sure you follow and subscribe and we'll talk to you next time. 